Welcome to Fintech Daydreaming. The podcast that dives into the world of banking technologies and the ever-changing landscape of fintech companies. We bring you real-life examples from global and local thought leaders, as well as experts working within the financial industry, and seek out the best stories from the front lines of financial services innovation, where dreams of industry pioneers meet reality. Hosted by Paul Krogdahl and Ville Sontu. This is Fintech Daydreaming. We're back with another fantastic episode, and this one I am pretty sure you're all going to love. We've got a fantastic guy with us that's going to um, share with us some insights that he's got around metaverse and uh, lots of exciting stuff. But as usual, I want to introduce you to my co-host and my fantastic friend, Villa, uh, who's going to be here with me today as well. Villa, how's life? Life's good. Uh, I think we mentioned this already a couple of times, but summer seems to be here. Maybe in Finland, uh, you never know. I mean, we usually have like two or three back winters before we actually get to uh, enjoy the real Nordic summer. But it uh, certainly has been a nice day today. So, looking forward to continuing this nice day with this uh, great conversation. Yeah, it was actually a fantastic good weekend. I spent most of it collecting leaves from the garden that I, if I'm honest, should have collected before the snow came, but it caught me <laughs> off guard. So. Better late than never, right? <laughs> exactly. Leave it for as late as possible. Turned out to be a bad idea for me at the end of last summer. But there we go. That's life. Uh, but like I said, we're going to have a really cool episode today. Uh, we've got with us Paul Yu. Um, and without further ado, I think, Paul, uh, why don't you tell the world who you are, uh, where you come from, and what makes you a superhero? Yeah, I'm really not sure about the superhero part, but thanks a lot, Paul, and thanks, Vile. Um, really a privilege and a pleasure um, to be here. So I started um, on the fintech journey, so the nerdy bit first, um, back when I was at Nokia, and this is, you know, in 2007, um, the year that uh, is probably most famous for the iPhone launching, and it was in sort of the rumbles before the Great Recession, right, in retrospect. Um, but for me, um, as someone who spent most of my formative childhood years in Kenya, and just watching that country go from, you know, sort of taking two or three years to wait for a telephone landline to basically 100% mobile penetration. Um, it was really fascinating, this little, you know, service you may have heard of called M-Pesa, actually formally launched in 2007. Um, and that's a lot of what I try to come back to. And from there, um, I got very heavily into what used to be called mobile money before the, the term fintech um, existed and, and Vile I see is nodding because uh, he, he is of a, a similar vintage, shall we say. Um, and fast forwarding, um, you know, had the opportunity to have a, uh, to co-found a mobile payment startup focused primarily in the high growth markets. Um, and most more recently, um, I've been running the Samsung Pay uh, US wallet. Um, and now I'm uh, heading up the consumer wallet services here at Meta, formerly known as Facebook. Excellent. So, I mean, growing up then with Impesa, I believe Villa, you had something to do with that project as well back in the days, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, Paul already kind of mentioned that this, by the way, is going to be fun. I have two Pauls here, so I'm just going to say Paul and see who, who kind of uh, picks it up. Uh, but anyway, uh, the uh, so yeah, so a full disclosure, uh, Paul and I go back uh, a little bit. Uh, we've been working together on many projects in the past, and uh, that's why we were had privilege to have him as a guest here as well. Uh, and I think the, the reason why we wanted him to be as a guest is, is, is really this breadth of knowledge about different parts of the world, the global global knowledge about different aspects of the of the fintech and payment uh, ecosystems in general mm. and without putting too many words into his mouth uh, to answer your question yes mpesa uh, while of course uh, i was not directly involved with that i've been working with with similar kinds of systems uh, with other uh, providers uh, in that specific region uh, i've also been involved with the uh, with the nokia money projects in the past which was a fascinating uh, uh, example of, uh, of a mobile uh, handset manufacturer trying to build a, a financial inclusion solution for these for these growth markets, uh, like like Paul mentioned. So yeah, I think when saying a similar vintage, I think we've been uh, we've been uh, in a similar phase of these journeys many times uh, with Paul. Yeah. Yeah. So, Paul, and, sorry. Yeah. 
And, and I like to say that in many ways, um, and, and I don't know if Vile would agree with me on this, like in terms of the emerging market, um, FinTech, the themes, the technologies, um, I think we may have been actually sort of a decade too early, right? Because one of the reasons that I actually um, continue to be really focused and really excited about the emerging markets is, I mean, absolutely there's a financial inclusion element of it, which, which I hope to get into a little bit here and, and fly that flag, but also just the, the opportunities are astounding, right? So if you look at the emerging markets today, especially things like the emergence of real-time payment networks, um, you know, UPI, you know, run by NPCI in India is probably the best example of this. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't have um, PromPay in India or Pixin in Brazil or Stay in Mexico, right? Um, so I, I think in ways, you know, this stuff isn't necessarily um, the most glamorous in some ways, but I think in terms of the opportunities for those markets to leapfrog infrastructure, um, I would say fintech in these emerging markets, per perhaps in a way that um, the, some of the more mature markets, right, um, because of some of the regulatory pressures in those markets, um, maybe are not. Um, so I, I, I want to be sure to fly that uh, you know high growth market uh, flag here because I think sometimes it doesn't doesn't get the love that and attention that perhaps it deserves. Right. We seem to be having a little bit of buffering problems on on your side, Paul. So I'm, I'm hoping that it's not going to interfere us with us too much. But um, that, that's that's it. Actually, one of the things that I'd I'd like to do is we've talked about Impesa in the past, and may, maybe Paul, for the few listeners who don't know the history of Impesa and you know the what it brought to to Africa and the the fintechs that it spurred off after that. Maybe you'd like to spend a couple of minutes just giving a bit of history on Impesa. Yeah. Um, and, and I'd love to share a little bit um, about how, how that may be a bit of a glimpse into um, the trends, right? Where, where we're going to go from in, a, in sort of a post-Empesa world. So Empesa was founded by Safaricom, which um, is a part of the Vodafone group. And the idea was actually quite simple, right? Where in markets where remote payments are extremely expensive and very, very hard, um, what started happening as soon as mobile telephony took off was you often had a situation where you had rural migrant workers that went to the cities and they needed a reliable, fast and cheap ways to get funds back, back home, right? So usually it was the urban worker that was you know, actually making cash in a, in a formalized economy. And what started to happen was because these are largely prepaid mobile phone markets. So you know, unlike here in the US or where you guys are, where you just get a bill at the end of the month, you actually have to buy a certain mobile data package or a voice package. So people basically found out and realized that because I can top up the mobile phone number of Vile remotely, and if you think about it, that is a form of value. I mean, today we would call it sort of like, almost like a token. Um, people basically just started trading airtime. And in, in fact, vendors were actually starting to accept mobile airtime as a form of payment. So it actually started to create this nice, um, what, what we would call a double-sided closed loop payment system. And of course the folks at Safaricom were, were very clever and very visionary uh, combined with a Kenyan central bank that shall we say took a more laissez-faire added towards this, allowed uh, this telco really to offer a, a service where they could actually allow people to remotely transfer value. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and the figures are actually quite staggering because today something like 70% of the Kenyan GDP is run on and PESA, uh, I just happened to be in Nairobi, like visiting, visiting my mother uh, last month. Um, and especially on the merchant acceptance side, uh, you can pull over on the side of a road, you know, a, a dusty road with almost any person with a little, you know, hand-drawn and PESA sign and load actual cash into the digital money system, get cash out, pay for goods and services. Um, and this is actually, I think, one of the themes that I think about a lot, actually, even here at Meta, Meta FinTech um, and even at Samsung Pay, which is to say, when you think about the solution, right, it's not that the UX is brilliant. It's not that the app is so, you know, cute and, and, and social, right? No, no, no disrespect to social elements in payments, but there was a very particular customer pain point and they solved it. So, you know, I think of it a bit like, you know, going back to 
the advent of um, the card network starting with Visa when Bank of America spun them out in the 1950s, right? When you think about a piece of plastic with a little bit of magnetic strip on it, hmm. we've all gotten very, very accustomed to it. But as a technological solution, it's, it's really crap, right? <laughs> it's not a great user experience. It right. takes multiple steps. It's not, it's not immediate you know, and so forth. So I think when you, when you look at the future of sort of where countries like Kenya will go, they've already done this one great leapfrogging. And I think that leapfrog you know, into the next thing, maybe it's crypto, maybe it's metaverse. You know, um, some of the things that I think about still though, however, is um, cash isn't going, going away anytime soon, no. right? Um, so I think the players that figure out how to do the online offline is, are, are going, to, going to win, right? Um, even in the, in the US, if you think about total purchase value, you know, volume of um, you know, several, several you know, trillion dollars or almost a trillion dollars now in the US post pandemic, still the vast majority of it is just regular offline retail where you go some, someplace, you find a t-shirt and pay for it on, on, you know, off, offline. Right. And I think it's going to be the same in the emerging markets. I think people are going to have to figure out the online offline. Um, I think, as I say, um, the emergent of real time payment networks, I think especially the thing that's interesting to me that I watch very closely is the the national real time payment rails um, and systems that have become clever enough that they want to try to connect with other real time payment networks. So, for example, RTP in Singapore um, and RTP in Philippines which among other things is a fairly large remittance corridor as well as trading corridor. If you think about the possibility of, of the local real-time payment networks then connected to other largely emerging market real-time payment networks, I think that's going to be very exciting. Um, and, I, and I can't uh, but mention um, you know, the crypto element of this, right? I mean, we've seen like in the last, I think 48 hours, some very dramatic um, you know, connections up and down and so forth. But I am, um, for the emerging markets, and we can get into this, very bullish on, on crypto. So for example, I think crypto is here to stay in places like Sub-Saharan Africa. I think it's not by chance that despite the Central Bank of Nigeria um, having an absolute ban on crypto, that the use cases, back to my earlier point about M-Pesa, solving actual pain points that customers have. Nigerian merchants need to purchase goods from largely from China. And because of the foreign exchange rules and, and so forth and so on, the most efficient way for them to do that is to place you know, Bitcoin from their wallet to, to a Chinese seller's wallet, right? That, as long as that customer pain point and merchant pain point exists, crypto will thrive, right? Um, you look at Argentina, very similar things are happening. It just so happens those two are, are frankly, some of the two, two of the worst currencies, right, from a volatility perspective. And so I don't think it's by chance that Argentina and Nigeria are two of the countries where this is very hot. So I think the, those are some of the trends that I notice in track. Yeah, I mean, let me reflect on a few points you made there, Paul. And uh, first of all, to our listeners, if you haven't really looked into what's going on in these emerging markets, these mobile money schemes, I, I definitely re recommend that as just a way for you to learn. Uh, it's It gives a whole new perspective into building something tangible, something that actually makes a difference in, in uh, every people's everyday lives. Personally, I, I worked I don't know, a decade on the different kinds of payments innovation and with, with very small user groups. And then going into these emerging markets and realizing that you're, you're making a difference for millions of people with these solutions, uh, it is an eye-opening experience. And one of the things uh, that I feel is important on the uh, on these emerging markets and mobile money solutions that Paul was talking about, like Empeza, is that they did work with the regulator from the get-go. Uh, they did realize that they have this prepaid airtime opportunity, but they, once they moved into the realm of real money and, and the regulatory uh, landscape became different, they did work with the regulators and the central banks to make sure that they are able to build this uh, trust on a regulated basis. The, uh, the other strong foothold, I think, these uh, solutions had and something also for uh, our dear fintech, <laughs> fintech nerd listeners uh, to acknowledge as well, is that the... Uh, they had 
feet on the ground. They had people on the ground. These mobile operators had huge mobile networks of agents on the ground. These are the individuals who are handling the day-to-day -day interactions and converting cash into digital and vice versa. And having these roots on the ground uh, made all the difference in the world. And uh, that, that's, that actually leads us uh, interestingly into the topic that was brought up, which is crypto. Because, and I, I might be uh, kind of positioning you here, Paul, a little bit, but I'm really uh, curious to hear your perspective, because one of the things that does bother me about the whole uh, financial inclusion uh, using cryptocurrencies is that sometimes, more in most cases, they, in my mind, fail to realize that they, they're, they are not working with the regulators. They're trying to work around the regulators. Mm -hmm. They are saying that uh, they're able to solve financial inclusion problems on the ground without actually ever visiting these countries. I feel that this, uh, this distribution layer, this last mile delivery uh, of this value, uh, regardless whether it's crypto or traditional rails, is something that uh, is sometimes ignored uh, in this uh, in these ecosystems. So uh, Paul, again, we worked in both uh, in this space for, for a long time. So I'm curious to hear the angle on uh, how, how do you see actually crypto overcoming this, uh, perhaps a little bit uh, prejudice opinions that I, I might have uh, about crypto in, uh, in financial inclusion. Yeah, I mean, the reason that I'm bullish um, and, I, and I'll say this in, in sort of a nuanced way, there are definitely problems that crypto can solve in certain markets, especially where I think the local currencies are, are very volatile, right? So I, we spoke about Nigeria, Argentina, um, you know, with um, El Salvador adopting Bitcoin. It's not as crazy as it sounds because when you actually have an underlying currency that's being constantly debased, right, is not, not pegged to a major currency, it, it actually starts to make a lot more sense than um, you know, trading crypto kitties um, just as pure speculation here in the U.S. I mean, maybe, maybe that is a particular kind of psychological problem, but it's not really a fundamental one in a way. I think on regulation, um, I think that my, my personal view, and you're right, Vile, to your point about, you know, mobile money actually working with regulators, even if it takes a long time, I, I think sort of my my plea for the regulators, you know, if um, Larry Gensler or, or Janet Yellen uh, or the European equivalent happen to be listening, um, I'm of the view that if you're going to regulate, you should regulate and you should, you should set out clear regulation. And if you're not, don't, right? It's sort of a fish, fish or cut bait. I think in the US, uh, because I, I sit here in the US, um, we're in the worst possible situation where the regulators are sending mixed messages as to whether they're going to regulate, but they're not telling us the what or the how, right? So we live in this sort of very uncertain world compared to even the European Union example, right? Where Mika, it's more of a question of when, not what. Um, and I'm also of the view, I mean, perhaps, you know, controversially in, as I understand it, the most, most recent example where I think there was an effort and really you will know this better than me and Paul, you probably as well, where there actually, there was thought to banning proof of work, digital currencies. Um, which frankly sounds a little little crazy to me, but if they were really going to do that, but there's at least a regulatory bright line. Whereas I think the regime that you have in the here in the U.S. is one state level actors like New York DFS getting involved. And by the way, like New York DFS, I think is doing a, a great job um, of, for example, publishing things like green lists, where anybody can go on their website and see right which crypto exchanges are actually sort of authorized at the New York DFS level. So I guess what, what I'm saying is, you know, I'm not here to lobby for any particular kind of regulation, but just to say either regulate or don't regulate. Don't, don't leave us in this, in this gray zone, right? The second thing that I will say is um, back to the M-Pesa analogy. I think one of the reasons that uh, in retrospect, M-Pesa was able to take off is one, you had willing regulators, right? I mean, people, to, to say that they were laissez-faire is perhaps not giving them enough credit because Kenneth Central Bank is staffed by very, very smart people. They, they understood um, what was at stake. And I think they, they intentionally held their hand from over-regulation. You look at the Nigeria example by, by comparison, right? Um, where the central bank has said for over a decade, you know, no, no telco mobile money licenses. And they finally relented. And guess what? Uh, mobile money wallets have not taken off in places like Nigeria in the way it has in more laissez-faire environments like Kenya. So I think you are going to start to see a certain amount of regulatory arbitrage, actually, 
here. Um, so like as a side anecdote, you know, I've even heard stories of, um, you know, people that I, that I know that recently have, um, you know, raised bunches of money, you know, on Sand Hill Road on crypto startups where there's a lot of discussion of, do we want to actually, do we even want to be in Palo Alto? Like, are we better off in, you know, Estonia or Bahamas or, or Malta? Um, so I think, I think this regulatory arbitrage is, is also um, quite real. Um, and the last thing that I'll say on the regulatory front, though, is, um, again, if, if Larry Gensler is listening, um, I also am not necessarily of the opinion that we need to throw out all the previous legal principles and start with something very new. So, you know, like this age-old debate is, is a crypto, is a particular crypto token, does it constitute a security? Well, it so happens in the U.S., we have very subtle law going back to like the 1930s, right? It's called the Howey test. So I think it is very possible and very realistic if, for example, the U.S. regulators actually decided they were going to regulate to provide clear guidance on how the Howey test does or not does not apply to certain cryptocurrencies. So by, by me saying they should, you know, fish or cut bait, I'm not saying they should start from scratch. I think certain of these principles work. I think, um, frankly, it's a lack of political will. I don't think it's completely new either. I mean, we can we can see similarities back to the early days of um, you know mobile phone networks. A great example is is when the the mobile operators were trying to stop uh, the growth of peer to peer communication systems over the internet and TCP/IP because it was eroding away what they believed was going to be their cash cow, right? And, and they asked for the regulators to step in. There was an awful lot of, um, you know, to and thrumming, but eventually it settled down into something that we're very used to now. And I'm assuming it's going to be exactly the same with crypto and the way that we're managing crypto, both from a regulatory perspective, but also within sort of the, the banking industry going forwards. Yeah. And I totally, and to your point, right. I mean, that's, that's actually the perfect analogy, I think, to, especially the, the, uh, leveraging crypto for payments because telco like here are fundamentally network effects businesses, which means that they're naturally assuming that we, we are talking about free market, relatively free market capitalist economies, they're going to trend towards an oligopoly because all payment systems and networks fundamentally do. And this is where, and again, I think my position is probably um, unpopular among the, um, the hardcore, what I call like the heavy metal crypto guys actually inviting regulation, but, you know, telcos all around the world were, were regulated, um, you know, and, and it doesn't mean the regulators pick the winners and losers. Um, it just means that they try to, you know, sort of take the fraud out of the market, take the fraud out of the market and acknowledge that I think it's going to do the same thing with, um, especially with stable coins, right? We're going to tend towards an oligopoly. We're not going to end up with a hundred. We're going to end up with a, with a couple. And, and I think, this probably is right for regulation, um, and uh, I'll I'll make sure to direct all the crypto uh, crypto bros hate mail towards you, Paul. Number number one, I'll let you handle those. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pass them on to someone else. But, uh, sounds good. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. You'll take. You'll uh, take them. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. one of the one of the things that very often comes up in discussion, going back to you know. Um, the whole onboarding the unbanked and uh, the use of cryptocurrencies, et cetera. One of the big discussions that very often come around are the, the regulated elements of banking and fiat currencies, et cetera, is the fact that if you lose your wallet, if you lose your cryptos, you've got no, no way of getting it back. You've got no consumer protection, no control, no nothing. And, and that's one of the elements as well that the regulators bring in and and ensure that you have got certain elements of protection over your financial uh, well-being, right? Whereas with crypto, all of that is gone. Yeah, but you know, I would um, I would actually argue back two two things. One, I think that is by design, and because the anonymity is by design, it can by design um, be protected. Actually, perhaps even by a national. Um, a fund that like, you know, reimburses people for people that actually have their accounts hacked. And to use the offline example, however, I would say someone could break in my, into my house right now and, and steal my physical wallet, right? And I, I don't know how much, I don't usually carry that much cash, but that money's gone. It's that same element of anonymity 
both for actual specie, you know, paper money and coin money, as well as crypto. So I think, you know, it is up to, for example, the um, the virtual as a service providers, we would say, or the crypto wallets to actually be able to step up in those occasions and say, hey, if someone actually does lose all of their life savings because they were hacked by, um, I was going to say Russians, um, but maybe that's North Koreans, let's say, that's that's probably more popular, by, by North Korean gangs, then I think it's up to the service providers. And by the way, I think that can be a competitive advantage where if people know that if I deposit right, crypt, you know, crypto X and wallet A versus wallet B, A will reimburse me and B will not. Hmm. Um, sort of similar, similar uh, by analogy thing going on right now, right? Um, raging with the Terra Luna. Um, and, and maybe we can bring stable coins into this for, for a minute and talk about that element. But I can't help but mention that I've been back to my earlier point about just because I personally believe that it is okay and maybe good for regulators to step in into situations like this. Like the definition of stable coin, back to the Howey test, right? Um, if you look at the definition, you know, it's investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profit through the efforts of others, right? This is like what I learned in law school, you know, second, second year at Columbia Law School, you know, many, many years ago. Those principles don't change. So if you actually look at that with the expectation of profit part of it, I think this is something that this is a thread that we should sort of pull through on which stable coins are really stable coins, because not all stable coins, for example, are, are made alike, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about the Terra Luna, like I've always been, I mean, all credit to my fellow Korean brother, Do Kwan. I don't know him personally, but he seems to have done some awesome things. But all the rhythmic stable coins for me don't, don't meet the definition of what is a secure, that it does meet the definition of what is security because there's a speculative element, right? Versus I'll give you another sort of extreme example. Um, if you think about the Libra Association, you know, DM now, okay, you know, part of Silvergate Bank, that model was very much, it's going to be tied to a very particular currency, US dollar, and it was actually going to be backed basically dollar for dollar by equivalent things of value that we can all agree are either actual dollar or very dollar-like. Those two could not be more different from each other. And I think of the lack of regulation, it's very, if, if a retail consumer hears stablecoin, they think basically the Luna Terra stablecoin is the same thing as, as the, you know, the DM coin or whatever Silvergate Bank, you know, renames that coin. So I think there, there, there are big, big differences here. And I think regulators can clarify some of that. So what if we step from the stable coins into uh, the central bank world or the central bank digital currencies? Don't you think that CBDCs are going to help to solve some of this? Um, I actually disagree. Uh, mm -hmm. I actually do not. Uh, I don't think CBDCs are a thing. Um, and, and I'm going to bring you back from the sort of emerging market, especially perspective, mm -hmm. because if, if you think about Let's, let's think about it from a, from a financial inclusion perspective, for example, right? So what, what do CBDCs do? The, the reason that people uh, are financially excluded, thing one, it's because they don't have IDs, right? They don't have national IDs. So if you think about even very sort of like middle income markets like Mexico, only 40% of the people have formal IDs, 60% don't. So no surprise that if you look at the bank population, it's 40, it's 40 60, and it's directly correlated to IDs. Like if you think about here in the US, you know, there are 50 million financially underserved, right? And a, a part of the reason for that, you know, which may, it bears, bears some thinking, I think, um, is uh, people, for example, that are incarcerated, when they come out, either their credit history has been hacked, or there's a, there's a huge like decade long credit history. So actually, they can't even get bank accounts, even if they have jobs and, and all of that. So I think a lot, there are some underlying infrastructure level problems to financial inclusion that have nothing to do with being able to send money very quickly and cheaply. So I actually think that given that, I mean, you know, large, especially the larger central banks and the major currencies already exchange money with other institutions digitally, and I don't see anything that is fundamentally broken. Mm -hmm. And then from the consumer perspective, 
I'll say something that probably also will be controversial and also direct hate mail to um, Paul number one is, I think the only regimes that can really benefit from, from CBDC are authoritarian regimes um, that want that to further control and further um, uh, have visibility into how their populace is spending money. So I think it's no surprise that the only real live CBDC operating at scale is in fact, China. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's coincidental at all. Um, so I, I think from the financial inclusion perspective, you've got to figure out how to get people, in my opinion, self-sovereign you know, distributed IDs, right? Um, I think you have to be able to solve that last mile problem, the online offline mm-hmm. problem. Um, and until you can do that, I, I don't really see what CBDCs can solve that, for example, mobile money doesn't solve, right? Or here in the US that uh, a Venmo doesn't solve. Because from the user perspective, it doesn't really matter to me whether it's, you know, got Uncle Sam's, you know, stamp on it, or I'm just using using Venmo. No, at the end of the day, once it's in your account, it's it's represented by digital numbers anyway irrespective of what currency it is or whether it's a crypto right. or, or not. So agree yeah. with that 100%. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's not, I mean, the central bank doesn't want it to be different either. I mean, that it's it's within their interest to make sure that the uh, the, the balance or their euro balance, for example, on your, on your account, whether it's central bank account or a commercial bank account is exactly the same. You cannot break that one-to-one peg. Uh, <laughs> funny to talk about pegs uh, in context of, uh, of the last 48 hours on, on the Terra Luna conversation, by the way. But the, uh, uh, yeah. the, uh, but the, the point I did want to make on, on CBDCs is that uh, I work with the European Central Bank uh, a bit with the, with the dig- uh, upcoming digital euro. And the, um, uh, I think one of the underlying conversations or the points across all the things we, we talk about is that there is no clear purpose for the uh, uh, for the central bank digital currency, just like you described, Paul. The uh, the the implied uh, purpose is to replace cash. Yet at the same time, it's quite clear that we will not get rid of cash because cash has its own features that you cannot really replicate in the in the digital world. Uh, so then that begs the question: What is the space between uh, the physical cash and our existing digital payment systems? And I don't I don't think that that is actually that much. There's other uh, things with regards to politics and sovereignty, of course, that are uh, that are in the play, but those are more I consider them political questions than practical questions from a from a consumer perspective. So, 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 Paul, yeah, I I, I completely uh, agree with you there. The uh, the authoritarian uh, question is also interesting because we we just we had a guest uh, some time ago. Uh, the name escapes me, who was talking about the Chinese experiment and the uh, and the use cases that they have there uh, in terms of uh, making the payments infrastructure more efficient. So Paul, do you see some purpose for CBDCs, perhaps uh, call, call it on the wholesale space, so you're able to have more efficient payment rails somehow, uh, perhaps interoperability? Is this something that could be done more efficiently with central bank uh, liabilities? Yeah, I think it is for countries that are going to be sanctioned. Um, whose currencies do not have, um, you know, very, very deep liquidity pools. Um, Because, again, all the major um, sort of reserves currencies, certainly, right, have all traded with each other perfectly well digitally for many, many years. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the one scenario where CBDCs um, could become actually geopolitically more interesting, and and I've been thinking about this a lot in the in the, I think all of us probably in payments have been thinking about this a lot, right? Um, with the the sanctions in Russia, um, and it probably won't be the first uh, or the last. When you think about um, economies that are sort of cut out of the SWIFT system, but more fundamentally, you know, is there a scenario under which um, there there become completely sort of geopolitically alternative, um, uh, let's see, regions of exchange, shall we say, right? where the logistics and the payment flows aren't going to be dollarized, right? And intentionally, you know, people don't want to dollarize because they, they're, you know, fearful of US sanctions or something like this, then maybe, maybe there's a there there. Um, but I think um, from the consumer perspective, I just genuinely don't know what consumers are going to get 
other than with CBDCs, um, the government, but you know, especially the Chinese system, right, can by design surveil you to a degree that is um, very Orwellian, which takes me to my first point of like fundamentally on the on the consumer engagement of financial inclusion. I think what's fundamental is getting the self-sovereign ID right so that there's at least some basic um, here in the US, we call the fourth amendment rights, right? Like from you know, unreasonable surveillance protection for the user that actually sets up on whether it's CBDC or other tokens or other, um, other tokenized uh, forms of value. So what do you think is to a certain degree halting the progress of adoption of crypto and stable coins? Do you think it's people's lack of understanding? Do you think it's a a fear of ending up in a situation where uh, financially they might end up in trouble? What, what do you think is the main hurdles for, for wider adoption? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a, I think there's a couple of elements. I think um, the first part of it is that like any new industry, it, it's sort of fascinating to be back, you know, to the earlier part of the conversation when Vili and I first got into mobile money and payments. There's a there's an ad right now running in the New York City uh, subways where it says, and I can't even remember what the company is, um, but it, it basically says stop finsplaining, as in F I N S, you know, planning, with the idea that there's just so much jargon in crypto. Like I think the sort of hardcore crypto insiders, by the way, of which I certainly do not consider myself a part at all. Right, um, I, I consider myself sort of on um, and early stages of learning um, about crypto, especially problems they can solve. There's a lot of jargon that I think is like almost intentionally, it's like joining any club, right? If you want to be a cool kid, you have to know all the sort of right memes and catchphrases and, right? I mean, like hoodler is a great example of this. If you like walk down the street and say like, hey, do you hodl? I mean, like, what is that? It just means someone that actually like is, is really into crypto. So that's the first layer. I think the second layer is, I think crypto has to be useful in some way. I mean, I, I just, I keep on coming back to this over and over again. What problem are you solving, right? So to put it a little bit cynically, um, I think there is a public perception um, that the people that ultimately have these crypto companies issue coins, and there's just tens of thousands of them out there now, and it's sort of a pump and dump scheme where you know the original founders get rich and everyone sort of gets left holding the bag. Um, I can't comment on whether that's true or not, um, but I think there there is that public um, perception. Um, and you know NFTs, sort of the other you know aspect of this that we haven't actually touched on a bit. NFTs, I'm actually quite bullish on as well. Mm -hmm. um, not from the perspective of the consumer, not, not from the, you know, board eight uh, yacht club, because, you know, that's just like the, the tulip boom, right? It's just sort of irrational exuberance. And I, and I think it'll just normalize as these things do. But I actually have a perspective. So like today, um, you know, looking at the NFT market where there are a lot of people saying, oh, it's the end of NFTs, it's the end of these exchanges, because like we've hit the peak and now we seem to be hitting a trough. So like here in the US, there are 9 million um, you know, crypto consumers or purchasers, and I'm, I'm one of them, um, and 2 million sellers. So I think I've, I've read articles, and I think it was actually in the Wall Street Journal, that's talking about that you know, there's too much supply, right? So that's what, what's driving the prices down. I actually completely disagree with that assessment. So here's why. So during the, uh, the lockdown, right, due to the coronavirus um, epidemic, one of the things that you saw in markets like South Korea, um, in Thailand and Vietnam was creators. And I mean, largely visual and, and other artists, right? Not, not sort of just social influencers, but like, I guess what I would say are people that make art for a living. The supply side spiked. Uh, and it's simply because if you're, if you're an artist and you live in these markets and you can't actually have a gallery show, like the idea that you can actually monetize your creation in an unintermediated way, I think is revolutionary. And I think that's the, the supply side is something 
that we should be watching more closely. So like personal anecdote, right? My uh, brother-in-law is a, is a painter, he's an artist and, you know, like quite successful in his way. Um, it has art shows, has a management company, has sponsors. So when I go to buy a piece of art, right? Cause I talked to him about the economics of it. If you think about how much he's gonna pay the gallery, what percentage is his uh, management company, you know, that did all, did all the PR takes. The actual artist is left with quite little. Yeah. Analogous to sort of the streaming service battles that we have, like musicians, right? It's like you get a dollar for a download back in the day, but how much of that the artist gets to keep? I actually think that there's going to be more and more creators, both mainstream and sort of amateur creators, that are going to drive the NFT market from the supply side. So I don't think NFT market is anywhere close to done. Um, and, and I think it's really the, the creator monetization and supply side that we should watch because that is a real life problem. That real life problem of artists not getting paid their you know, fair share, that problem is not going to go away. And I think NFT can, can solve that. From, from cryptos to NFTs, I think you know what's coming next. We need to ask the question that we did have a fantastic conversation with Chris Skinner uh, on the previous episode as well about, which is the metaverse. So uh, a lot of people say that uh, crypto and NFTs are absolutely necessary to, to run these uh, economies in the, uh, in the upcoming metaverse, however you might uh, or anybody might define it. Uh, do you think that's true? Do, do we really need crypto or isn't the existing, aren't the existing systems able to cater for these uh, needs of the uh, digital economy in the, in the metaverse? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. Um, and and this, this is, you know, one place where I will um, give the disclaimer that everything that I'm going to say here is, is really my own Paul Yu perspective, does not reflect my current employer or previous employer. Um, uh, and so these are just my opinions. The answer um, is, I don't know. Um, I have read or attempted to read some of the white papers on metaverse interoperability. Um, and back to Paul's earlier point and your analogy again of the telco world is, is the perfect analogy for this because we do have a fundamental interoperability problem in the metaverse. So is the metaverse going to be more like, um, remember the railroad boom? Um, at the turn of the two centuries ago in the US and you know, created these robber barons. And what actually ended up happening is there was just, there were railroads that were running parallel to each other and everybody just bankrupted everybody else because it was overbuilt, it was speculative. I suspect without knowing, I mean, look, if I could predict, if I can answer this, Vile, um, you and I and Paul would not have to do, a, do this podcast. We could quit our jobs <laughs> and afford to, do, um, afford to do podcasts all the time. I guess, rather than working. So I genuinely don't know, but when I think about the interoperability problem and I, when I think about the sort of infrastructure, large infrastructure build outs like this, thinking back to analogies like building railroads across the United States or um, the telcos, um, I don't think in the absence of regulation, there's anything fundamentally different about the interoperability problems or the sort of overinvestment problem that is unique to the metaverse. I think it's no different than uh, railroads. Yeah. So I, I, I suspect there's going to be some overbuilding. I suspect there's going to be a lot of competition. I suspect that there's going to be big winners and big losers. And eventually, again, back to Paul's analogy with the telcos, these things tend towards oligopolies naturally. So I suspect we're going to end up with a couple of, let's say, very large you know, landlords that own very large parts of the railways that makes the metaverse work. But coming back to the consumer pain point, point I think on the question of, for example, payment in particular, I think consumer preference is king. I mean, I think the the people who are building the metaphors infrastructure need to allow people to use payment methods of their, that of their choice, right? It, it is very difficult to force people to adopt new payment methods that they aren't already using or are highly deeply incentivized to use, right? Discounts or promotions or, or what have you. So I don't, from that perspective, really think there's anything fundamentally so different about trying to build 
the metaverse. Um, Paul, what what are what are your thoughts while we speculate here? <laughs> I I agree with you completely, and I think there is going to be a, a fundamental issue for a, a longer period of time about interoperability, and I also think that without some elements of of governance or uh, regulatory control, we are going to see a, a a large amount of fluctuation, a large amount of winners and losers, just like you said. And I think it's going to take some time for this to settle down. Maybe we'll go for a period like we did with Telco, where you end up with underlying roaming fees, right? So you can, you can stay in this metaverse, but if you move to a different metaverse, you've got roaming fees associated with it, or you can use this payment process, but if you use a different one, again, there's underlying fees associated with it, as this all equals out uh, over a longer period of time. Yeah, uh, and I, I, I kind of like the point that since these metaverses are digital environments and they're global by nature, so they are completely borderless uh, in that sense. And then these borderless digital environments, they also need uh, a way to exchange value in, in a borderless way. In a, in the, so you need some kind of a global unit of account uh, to do that. I do concede that point, which actually Chris Skinner made last week or the last episode. The, um, the, the point, that, however, I think is underappreciated here is that that something cannot be disconnected from the existing economic systems completely. There has to be some way to define this in a, in, in a local law in order to have local liabilities defined as well. And I think that's where the fascinating stuff happens in the, in the near future. How do we define yeah. this, uh, this bridge between the digital and the, uh, the mundane world where uh, laws apply? Uh, and uh, then again, it's a whole other... Uh, a discussion about what law will look like in the metaverse, but uh, maybe we save that for another episode. But I've yeah. actually been wondering about that villa. I mean, Chris also mentioned this that it was it's global, it's borderless. But it, but in some ways, if you think about it, one at the moment, as we've got multiple metaverses, they've got borders, right? You could almost see them as 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 having borders and not being global. The other one is we're enabling people to buy land or buy you know, space in the metaverse. What's preventing someone from buying enough and saying, this is my land, here are my borders. And within my community, it is this currency or this form of payment that's, that, that's valid and I won't accept or we won't accept anything else. Therefore, creating digital borders in the future anyway. Yeah. Um, I have, I think on, you know, kind of a personal anecdote on the point about, um, I guess the portability of, of payments and whatever that the token of exchange is, right? So one of the very, very early um, online worlds that was actually extremely successful um, and probably little known outside of Korea was um, a world actually created by SK Telecom, a telco called Cyworld, C-Y-W-R-D. And this was like a, a craze in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, and the means of exchange was a acorn, it was called a totori. Mm -hmm. So nothing to do with crypto, nothing to do with, you know, but, but there was a online offline acorn. The acorn was worth a certain number of Korean ones, right? And actually there started to become a very liquid market for trading acorns, totori, for goods and services. Um, to this day, I'm very frustrated because I had a, a fairly significant amount of potori left in the system. And when they shut down the server, I still don't know what, what, what happened to that. And I think SK um, World is, uh, is going to, Cyworld is going to like re -re relaunch in sort of a, some version of metaverse. Um, and I want my money back, basically. <laughs> I mean, I mean that, is, th that is to say, to your point, Vilay, that whatever the store of value is, there is going to need to be some, some way to one, make it interoperable, right? I mean, the same way that, you know, Bank of America created, created this charge card, card that became Visa and, and eventually was smart enough to invite all the other banks because they had to have interoperability. Like, I think some of this will actually, I'm optimistic that it'll happen naturally, but I think in between, there's going to be a lot of winners. There's going to be a lot of losers. Maybe there are going to be some land barons, like you say, Paul, that say, this is all my land and you can't, you know, this is, this is Vile land. Right, and you have to like do a border crossing, um, but but we'll see. As always, we run out of time, 
way too quickly. This has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you very much, Paul, for, for joining us. One of the things that we like to do just to, to lighten the, uh, the mood is ask our guests if they've got a favorite fintech or banking joke before we sort of round off. You got a joke you want to share with us, Paul? Yeah, I, it's not so much of a joke, more, more of a um, just funny story. Um, on the point of the crypto craze, I realized the moment that I realized that I was sort of caught up in this crypto craze was a couple of months ago. Um, I was in this presentation, PowerPoint, you know, in a Zoom environment about Thailand, right? So we're just going slide after slide after slide. And I see the Bitcoin, you know, logo everywhere. And I'm like, I'd heard about El Salvador adopting, you know, Bitcoin as a national current, like, because, you know, we are, we're in a remote working environment. I'm like, oh crap, have I like missed something really big? Like, do I need to book a ticket to go to, you know, go visit Cassie Corn Bank and Tycoon Bank and like do, do a deal here? Mm -hmm. and, I, and, I, and I actually put my hand, you know, the virtual hand that you have in the, and I was like, um, wow, this is just so shocking that billions of dollars of the Thai economy are completely on Bitcoin. How do they like handle the volatility? And there's just a silence, right? Sort of that very polite Asian silence. And they said, oh, that's, that's the Thai bot symbol. <laughs> and, I, and I just had this kind of, oh, I've just been thinking too much about, about crypto. So I would invite all of our listeners to go Google this right now. Thai bot versus the Bitcoin symbol on a Zoom screen. Like you be the judge, whether, <laughs> whether I was caught in the crypto craze, craze or, or this is a thing. I sense a meme coming up. Right. So fantastic. We will we will give you the honor of of being the founder of that meme. Absolutely. That's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a fant fantastic story. That's really good. But also before we we uh, close off here, Paul, if our listeners would like to get in contact with you, find out more about your provocative point of views or have a discussion with you without you sending all the haters to me. Um, how can they find you? How can they get in contact with you? Yeah, I think if you uh, go on LinkedIn and look up uh, Hyungo and Paul Yu, I have a fairly unique name. Um, so I think you'll be able to find me there and you can uh, you know, send me a direct message. So, Fantastic. Again, thank you, Paul, for joining us. It has been a really interesting discussion. I've really enjoyed it. I know Villa has, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. But to our fantastic listeners, thank you for uh, sitting through another great discussion with us. As always, please hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, leave us a message. You know, as we get more interactions from you, it drives the visibility of the podcast. We get more listeners and the more listeners we get, the more excited Villa and I get about finding new guests and bringing you more content and more interesting discussions like this. Villa and I will be back in two weeks' time with another guest. We're heading quickly towards uh, the end of this season and summer, but there is going to be some more episodes. Until then, this has been Fintech Daydreaming. This is Fintech Daydreaming.